invite you to take a Bible and turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. It's uh, page 301 in these Bibles in the pews. And um, as we continue a series on the uh, life of Elijah the prophet, this is the sixth sermon in that uh, series. Arthur, are y'all okay? You need help? Okay, let's uh, attend to uh, God's word, and thank you, Arthur and John, for y'all attending to that. We're looking at verses 41 and following at the end of uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 18. Hear God's word. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your presence now and all that takes place. May you speak to our hearts from your word, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This, uh, this is a, a briefer sermon from the book of uh, First Kings about Elijah on the subject of prayer. That's really the main, the main lesson here has to do with prayer and God's grace. Uh, one of an excellent, one of the best books I've read on prayer was written by Dr. Doug Kelly, who's preached here a variety of times. And it's, it's a, a brief book, and it's entitled, If God Already Knows, Why Pray? It's a good question, isn't it? If God Already Knows, Why Pray? And he begins with this premise. He says, prayer makes good things happen because it gets God's will done and as a result brings down his best blessings. And he's saying there that God has planned these blessings uh, that can only be released, you might say, by the prayers of his people. And he tells, Dr. Kelly tells how in 1970 there was an American postgraduate student from the southern U.S., who went to study in Scotland. And he was captivated by a young woman in his classes. He was captivated by her beauty and by her intelligence and by her faith in Christ. She was from England. Uh, And she was studying, obviously, in the same classes at the University of Edinburgh. Now, instead of asking this this person to whom he was attracted, instead of asking her to go out on dates, this rather quiet, shy, southern young man started praying regularly, praying diligently and intensely that the Lord would prepare the girl to marry him. And so he prayed that way for two years, constantly for two years. And all during those two years, it said that the young lady rarely showed any signs of interest whatsoever. Yet he prayed on and prayed on. And one day, After two years of prayer, he popped the question. 
which to his delight she answered with a definite yes, I will marry you. Now as the years passed after they married and they came to the U.S. and ministered here, they had children, they were engaged in ministry. As the years passed, it was more and more obvious that God had truly made them for each other. And they were a great team intellectually, spiritually, culturally, physically, family-wise. As they looked back, they said only God could have brought them together. And so in retrospect, the young man looked back at his two years of constant praying as the means by which God released the blessings which he himself had planned for eternity. In other words, to put it simply, God made the plan and then used the prayers of his people to bring his plan to fulfillment. And that's really what we have here with uh, Elijah. Uh, for those that have not been here, just a brief word, quick overview leading up to this point, what has happened. If you remember, God's people have divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Uh, and the north is called Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. And Elijah is a prophet. He was a messenger from God who was sent to the northern kingdom, to the kingdom of Israel. And the king at that time is named Ahab. Uh, Ahab is very wicked. He's, he's an ungodly man. He, he worships false, false gods. And he's married to Jezebel, who is from the country of Phoenicia to the north, a very pagan country. And she worshiped the god of nature called Baal. And so when they married and she came to set up shop, as first lady, she brought 850 priests of Baal and Asherah with her. And they influenced the people even more to forsake Jehovah. And so this was a dark time spiritually in the life of God's people. Elijah appears in chapter 17. He just kind of appears on the scene. We're not told anything really leading up to this about him. And he, he confronts the king and he says, there's going to be no rain except by my word. That begins uh, what amounts to a three and a half year drought. God immediately, though, at that point after he speaks to Ahab, God tells Elijah to travel to a very remote era, area called the Kareth Ravine, where there's this brook where he can drink water. And he removes Elijah, and that's part of the judgment on Israel from God. He's disciplining his people not only by removing rain, he's removing his word that gives nourishment. And so Elijah goes there, and he, he, he stays, it may be as long as a year, and then the Lord tells him to go to a town far away called Zarephath. And that's very odd because Zarephath was right near Jezebel's hometown in the country of Phoenicia. He's sending Elijah to the middle of the land of the pagans. And God provides for him a place to live with a widow and her son, and he provides food for them miraculously day after day. While he is there, the, son's, uh, the son of the, the widow becomes very sick and dies, and, and Elijah prays, and God miraculously restores this young man to life. After three years, God tells him to go back to Israel and to confront Ahab, and Two weeks ago, the last time we were together dealing with Elijah, we saw what's called the contest at Mount Carmel. And there the prophets of Baal cried out all day long, and they danced around their, their altar they had made. 
And they, they called out on Baal to send down fire, and they cut themselves with knives to show the sincerity of their devotion, and, and nothing happened. At the end of the time, nothing happened. And then Elijah comes before God's people, and, and he confronts them and says, if God is, if Jehovah is God, then serve him, but if not, serve Baal. He prays a brief prayer. The prophets of Baal have prayed all day long. He prays a brief prayer. Fire comes down. <clears throat> takes not only the, 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 the bull that's been prepared, it, it takes the rocks, the wood, uh, everything, the water is, is consumed by the fire. Now we come to this passage. This is the very, uh, then judgment falls, unless I forget, judgment falls on those 450 prophets of Baal. And by the way, I, uh, this is a difficult place in the Old Testament that, that if you're skeptical, this may be one of those places you say, why would the Lord tell them to execute these 450 prophets? I don't know the answer for all of that. Uh, I, I, I certainly don't. I, we see that God had warned about the dangers of this. I would just say this is not sugar-coated, but this takes a lot of knowledge about Baal worship for granted. When, when you had the worship of such gods as Moloch and others, child sacrifice was very much a part of that. I mean, they would stoke up a fire so hot and they would place a baby in that uh, that it would, it would burn so quickly. And this was very common, common part of, of these types of worship that we tend to think, well, there was nothing harm, harmful about that. And uh, so that we, we don't know how brutal a lot of this stuff was, we don't realize. But God called for their execution and Elijah carries out what God has said to do. Now a little bit of time has passed. We don't know if it's hours or what, but he, he comes to Ahab in the passage we read, and he tells Ahab, the king, go up and eat, and, and you, gotta, you better do this quick or you're going to get drenched because there's a sound of, of great rushing rain that's going to be coming. And so we see Elijah then kneels in prayer, and he's intense in prayer. That's shown by his very posture. He's, he's on the ground. He puts his face between his knees. He, He's prayed intensely earlier in chapter 17. He, 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 he uh, repeatedly was reduced to prayer. He prays uh, for, for life for this, the boy that had died in, in chapter 17. He, he prays for fire earlier in this chapter there on the mountain. And, and now he's praying for rain, that God would fulfill what he's promised. He has no power. He no, he's not a superhuman. He has no power to produce these things. He can't stop the rain. He can't healed a, a, a dead boy. He can't, he can't provide food for the widow. He can't do any of those things on his own. And he knows it. And so he's, he's helpless and he's praying. If you are full of your own self and your own ability and you're very confident in yourself to make things happen, you probably are not a person of prayer. I had a friend in college named Laura and her father was a neurosurgeon in, in Pensacola. And she had become a Christian, and, and um, I think she was one of the only members of her family that had become a Christian. And she, she told me, she said, my dad is just so confident in himself. She said, before surgery, if he sees another, I mean, they're getting ready to work on somebody's brain. If he sees another doctor praying, he will uh, say, what are you doing that for? That's why I went to medical school. She said he'll just ridicule them. Uh, if you and I just are so confident in ourselves, we, we won't pray. Elijah was humble, and so he, he's praying. Praying itself is a humbling activity, and I've asked myself, why is it? 
Why is it so humbling to pray? Well, we have to cease our action to pray. We're acknowledging, I I can't do this. I'm totally dependent on you. Uh, You can't change your own heart. I can't change my heart. I certainly can't change your hearts or anyone else's. We, We are totally dependent on God. And so we... We go to prayer, and in sincere prayer, it humbles us because it's a humbling activity. So Elijah was humble, but with that, he's confident. You say, wait a minute, if he's humble, how can he be confident? Those seem to be contradictory, but they're not. They go together because his confidence was not in himself. His confidence was in the promises of God. He is certain it is going to rain. He is so certain it's going to rain that apparently the sky is blue over the ocean and he tells Ahab, you better hustle or you're going to get caught in the downpour because the rain is going to come. So he's confident. It's not brash. He has a general confidence because God had given a promise earlier in 1 Kings to Solomon that if his people repent, he would send the rains. So he has the general confidence that this is God's will. But then in verse 1 of chapter 18... God had assured him, I will send rain upon the earth. So he's praying for something that God had already promised that God was going to bring about. Now, I don't, I've never made the effort or taken the time to count up the number of promises in the Bible. I'm told, I have read by those that have done such, that there are between 8,000 and 10,000 promises in the Bible. I suppose that's Um, that's correct. But how do those promises relate to us? In other words, which promises were for a specific time and place and people or persons, and which promises are for us today? I mean, should I as a preacher tell a farmer who's experiencing drought, well, here's what you need to do. Go get on your knees and put your face between your knees, you know, between your knees, and pray and, and repeat these verses. You know, use the latter part of 1 Kings 18. God promised rain, and he'll do it. Now, I hope you get the point. I'm saying that's not a correct application of that promise. Yes, we should pray for rain when it's needed, and God may provide it. But this promise was for a particular time. And so some of the promises in the Bible are universal promises. Some are personal promises, universal promises like when Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's a promise for anyone who comes to him. In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For all people through all of time, if you believe in Christ, you'll have eternal life. That was not just for the people to whom John was writing there when he, when he penned those, those words. But some promises were personal. When, when God told Joshua to march around the city of Jericho seven times, that's in Joshua chapter 6, and he would conquer the city, the walls would come down, and then, then Joshua and his troops would conquer the city. We don't apply that promise today. We don't tell the troops trying to retake Fallujah, now here's what you do. Go to Joshua 6, And it says there's a promise if you march around the city seven times. No, we know that was a promise at that time for that situation. And we don't apply that today. Some promises are conditional. For example, in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's the if. If we confess our sins, he is faithful 
to do what he has promised to do. So we, we see that some promises are universal, some are personal, and we also see that they involve the sovereignty of God. Now, some, for some of you, Reformed theology may be somewhat new, and, and we use the term Reformed theology talking about the study of God that came out of the time of the Reformation, uh, out of the 1500s and 1600s. And it had three things that it stressed. The first distinction of Reformed theology is the sovereignty of God, that God is in control over all things. The second thing uh, that's distinct about Reformed theology is that we have, we have completely unable to save ourselves. And the third aspect that's distinct is that salvation is all of God, that he's the one who planned it and carries it out. Those are the, the big three distinctives of Reformed theology. If that is new to you and you say, okay, if God's in control of all things, there's a question that's going to come up very quickly, and that is, why pray? That's why Doug Kelly called his book, entitled it, if God, is in, if God is in Control, Why Pray? If God already knows, why pray? And so if God, why gather at 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock today, not 5 o'clock, well, you'll be an hour early, it's 6 p.m. tonight, uh, to pray. If, if God's got his plan, if God's going to do something, what difference does it make then whether we pray or not? Well, that's where this is helpful. Um, it's a good pattern to follow here. Uh, and most theologians put it this way. God's will is certain. He will carry it out. But he delights to do his will and answer to the prayers of his people. The prayers of believers often are the appointed channel by which God works his will. He's not limited to this channel, but we might say he highly prefers it. Here's an example in Ezekiel 36. God, I'm going to read you just a few words. It says, This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their men like a flock. In other words, God says that he's going to increase their number. There's going to be a population explosion. But he says, I'm going to let them ask me to do it before I do it. You say, explain that to me. I can't. It's a matter of means and ends. God seems to work in such a way that he declares his will, and then he says, now I'm going to move my people to pray for that, which I've already declared I'm going to do. He had told Elijah, I will give rain. And now Elijah prays for it. He prays it down, you might say. So we, the good pattern for prayer is that we take his promises and we pray and we have the assurance, I'm praying according to his will. I don't have to wonder whether my request then is selfish or self-serving or you know, out of his will. If I take his promises and plead those promises in prayer, for 20 years I prayed for my father uh, for his conversion and I remember praying with those thoughts in mind. Charles Spurgeon said they're like arrows that you shoot up into heaven. Your argument saying, Lord, you say that you desire that none should perish but that all should come to repentance. How will it bring you glory to send this man to hell? Please open his eyes. Christ had compassion on those who were lost. And so I would pray like that and still pray like that for others with the promises of God, helpless and totally dependent upon them. So Elijah is intense in his prayer. 
Now, what's odd here to me is he's on Mount Carmel. He's got his servant. He's told Ahab, you better, you better hightail it out of here. You're going to get drenched. And he's there with his servant, and he's praying, Lord, send the rain, send the rain, send the rain. I think part of his prayer is he loved the people, and they had been suffering greatly. So he didn't have to prove that, that God was the Lord. That had been done earlier. But he's praying, Lord, now would you send the rain? And the servant goes up, clear sky, clear sky, clear sky, seven times. It says there's nothing at all. Now, what's odd? What is odd is that each time we see that he's prayed before, like when he prayed for the fire to fall, if you were here two weeks ago, you know, the prophets of Baal had jumped around and done all sorts of things for hours and hours. I, I read his prayer, Elijah's prayer, it lasts less than 30 seconds. <clears throat> Immediate answer. The fire comes down. Why does God have him pray over and over now for rain? Why didn't the clouds just come up like a hurricane, you know, just moving real fast, right? Why the pleading? Are y'all familiar with the name Watchman Nee? You don't hear his name too often anymore. Watchman Nee was a, a Chinese um, man who had, had heard the gospel at a young age through Christian missionaries, and he went to a Christian school and, at a young age. He lived through the Boxer Rebellion, but he was committed to Christ. And his, his theology, because he basically was self-educated from that point on, uh, I wouldn't recommend his teaching as the theology you follow, but his commitment to Christ was stellar. Uh, he spent the last 20 years of his life after the communists came to power. In 1952, they imprisoned him, and he died in prison in 1972. But he wrote numerous books and started churches and trained leaders and he had a, a, a very influential ministry in, in China. And those books, are, are, his books are read uh, all over the place. But he tells this story in one of his books where he and some other young, I guess teenager-like, and young older, older boys and teenagers, they went swimming in a river. And there was a whole group of them, and one of the boys who couldn't swim well got out into the deep water, and he got a cramp in his leg, and he began to yell for help. Well, there was only one really good swimmer in the group. Watchman Nee said he was an expert swimmer, and he was standing on the shore, and the boy's out there struggling and yelling, and so Watchman Nee yells over at the expert swimmer and says, Go get him! He needs help! Go get him! And according to the account, the expert swimmer just stood there, just watching, didn't say anything, he's just looking. The guy continued to struggle and struggle and struggle to such an extent that he finally went under, and... At that point, and Watchman Nee's yelling at this guy. He's angry at him. Why he's not doing anything, he dives in, swims, rescues the boy, brings him ashore. When he gets him ashore, um, after saving him, Watchman Nee says to him, he says, I can't believe how selfish you were in allowing this to happen to this young boy when you could have pulled him out immediately. Why did you do that? And the expert swimmer just responded. He said, if I'd gone earlier, he would have clutched me so fast, we would have both gone under and drowned. A drowning man cannot be saved unless he ceases to be frantic and is, utter and is utterly exhausted. Then he's able to be saved. And Watchman Nee, in his book, makes the point, when we give up our own agenda and cease doing it all in our own strength, then God will be willing to dwell in us and use us. He's waiting until we are at the end of our resources and can do nothing more for ourselves. 
So based on Elijah's experience, I offered this word of caution because some people teach that if you pray a certain way and you have enough faith, then you will see God do this. Uh, and yet we can follow all sorts of patterns in prayer, but God is not so predictable. And some of us pray for things once, some of us pray for things for decades. And it's up to God how and when and if he chooses to answer those in the ways that he chooses. So I think we need that understanding. Who really knows why? We, we don't know. But we should pray and we should plead and we should agonize and we should be intense in our prayers. And last of all, in the closing moments I have, uh, are y'all still, are y'all frozen yet? I'm even cold. And when I'm cold, y'all are cold. Okay. Um, we serve a God who extends incredible grace. Uh, what happens next is weird. Okay, it's just weird. This is one of the weirdest places in the Bible. The skies grow dark and the rain is coming. And it's seen by a cloud the size of a man's hand. He looks and he just sees a tiny cloud out there, the servant does. And at that point, Elijah knows it's coming. We've got to go. Because it's 17 miles to get to Jezreel. That's, that's where he's told Ahab to go, and that's where he's going to go. 17 miles. Now, I, the, the app I use the most on my phone is called Dark Sky. Y'all use Dark Sky? It's a weather app, but it's unlike any weather app you may see because it will say, well, my phone's off, but if I were to turn it on, if it's going to rain today, it will say light rain starting in 18 minutes. You want this app. It's worth the four bucks. And then if you're sitting somewhere and you're waiting to run to your car because it's raining, it will say rain will stop in three and a half minutes. Smartphones have barometers in them, and apparently they can, I don't know, Big Brother's out there watching all this, you know. Big Brother's the weather channel, and you didn't even know it. So if, if his servant had had a smartphone, Dark Sky would have said, no rain in the forecast, no rain in the forecast, no rain in the forecast. And then, I like the way it puts it in verse 45, there was a great rain. We don't talk like that. We say there's heavy rain or there's lots of rain or it was pouring cats and dogs. But here it was a great rain. And it comes and Elijah girds up his garments and he runs and he takes off. And why do you say, why do you say it's weird? It's weird because he outruns the chariot. That's what's weird about it. Uh, if, if you put your money on a horse or, or a man, I'll go with a horse. So he, he outruns Ahab, and there's no doubt, any commentary you pick up on 1 Kings, they'll say this is, that it happened, but there's more to it. It was significant. God is saying something by the fact that Elijah beats Ahab back to where they're going, that he outruns him, and it says due to the Lord's hand being upon him. It's not like Elijah was an you know, Olympic sprinter in training when he decided to do the prophet gig or something like that. But here's what the Bible scholars see as significant. The fact that Elijah runs before Ahab strongly suggests that God is putting his prophet as a servant to the king, like as a forerunner, as a, as a representative of the king. The other train of thought that complements that is that it's symbolic that now the king is to follow the prophet, whereas Ahab has been not listening to God's word, but worshiping idols, now he should follow God's messenger, Elijah. So God is showing amazing grace to this guy. 
truly amazing grace to Ahab. Would you? I mean, he had, he's described as more wicked than all his, the kings before him. Uh, they killed off. He lets Jezebel kill off all these prophets of the Lord. They had destroyed the, the altars where sacrifices were made to Yahweh. He's done all of this. And yet, God is showing him grace. The chapter ends with a question because as they come to Jezreel, that's where, that's where Jezebel is. That's his home. That's uh, Ahab's home. Maybe the light was on. And maybe if the movie stopped, maybe if that episode stopped, it will be, what will Ahab do? All he's seen that day, he's seen God work, Elijah has spoken to him, and now God is showing him grace. And we'll find out, Lord willing, ne next week what Ahab does, but even more so what happens with Elijah. So I want to I close with this. Um, when it comes to God's grace, often Christians treat it lightly like, eh, you know, sin's no big deal. I just believe in God's grace. And unbelievers don't think enough of it. Like, God can't forgive me. Do you really think you're worse than Ahab? Maybe you are, but probably not. And yet God's extending grace to him right, right there at that moment, even as he would extend it to you. He gives us promises. He gives us invitations like, Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, uh, we observe this guy, Elijah, and we see his intensity in prayer. And we pray that you might help us to trust your promises. Whatever our age here, whether young or older, however long we believed in you and followed Christ, it could be that there's somebody here that, that prayer is a foreign concept because they don't know you, just like Saul of Tarsus. And first indication of his conversion was that he prayed. And perhaps we don't pray because we don't know how to pray because we don't have yet the ability to call you Father. And may you give us, grant us faith, a gift of faith, even this very moment, that we would put our trust in Christ and repent and turn to him as our Redeemer. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.